Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 51, Interrogating History. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always is the man with a PhD in subverting the dominant paradigm, Chris Padgett. Thank you, Joshua. How are you doing, my friend? Good. You know, we're, we're in a little morning now. Our beloved Giants have exited the scene. Uh, baseball season has ended for, for us, I think. It's going on for some other people, but ended for us. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're, we're optimists, right? So we want to take joy out of what we got out of the season and not dwell too much on the, uh, the, the tragedy of the end, we'll just say. Well, I'm choosing the aesthetic over the result because the aesthetic, if you're into, you know, the poetical nature of all this, uh, is that the season passed off in a blaze of glory and ended only and perhaps fittingly with a check swing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That was, uh, as the fates would have it, called third strike in the ninth inning to end the game. Uh, but I, but I see something poetic in that. That Josh, after a remarkable season, a season nobody expected, uh, in which we were able to dethrone we giants. I use the collective when I speak of this. Yes, dethroned the hated rival of the Southland, the Dodgers. Uh, after many years of their ruling the Western Division. Uh, yes, the Giants, we can now say, are champions of that Western division. And because the Dodgers went on in the very next series to lose yep. to the Atlanta Braves. Soften uh, the blow a little bit. <laughs> no one will remember anything yeah. other than the 100-win season of the San Francisco Giants. So, yeah, yeah, I'm taking the poet's way out of this and elevating it all to a, an unimpeachable place in our, our memory. How's that? That's great. And, and to bring it back to the podcast, our promise to you, the listeners, is we will never check our swing. It's always swing for the fences with every pitch. Strike out, swing and miss, hit it over the fence. Doesn't matter. It's all, we're going to put the effort in. Never never stop swinging, right? We're going to be swinging and swinging hard, my partner. See the ball, hit the ball. That's, that's, our, oh, yeah. that's our mantra here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it seems sometimes after the end of baseball season, everything get, just gets frozen in time. You know, it's the the, the fall Weather, we've now had our first gully washer, much needed rainstorm, atmospheric river. There, there are all kinds of dramatic names to, to describe what happened. Uh, but as we move closer into win, you know, winter, we think of the freezing time. But I tell you what, Josh, based on what I'm reading in the news these days, you know what's not freezing? You know, in fact, still is on the move? Statues. Yes. Never, the never-ending discussion of statues. We've discussed statues more in the last few years than probably the previous hundred years. So, <laughs> who knew they were so mobile, so kinetic? Uh, yep. You know, they're 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 in constant motion these days. These statues, they they can hardly stand to to remain in one place. It seems. Well, who's who's the the next statue that we're we're gonna strike down 
Well, listen, there's a, it's like the Academy Awards. There's, there's a list of, of candidates, right? <laughs> uh, one, one was, of, of course, our, our, you know, our old uh, pal, Thomas Jefferson, who maybe next to, I don't know, John Meacham is one of our favorite targets for yeah. abuse. Uh, Tom, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who, who is found in, in some of the most unlikely places, including apparently the city council chambers in New York City, uh, yeah, a statue of Thomas Jefferson uh, to be moved uh, pending, I suppose, if not already. Uh, I don't know who it is that, that are moving all these statues. They took down Robert E. Lee in Richmond, Virginia, right? I think second only maybe to the Saddam Hussein statue yeah. in Baghdad. Did they have more trouble actually dislodging the uh, the monumental Lee uh, but then another one of our favorite uh, targets, it seems, if if not actually moved yet, has come under fire uh, from those who say he should be. And of course, that is uh, Winston Churchill. Is it a coincidence that our, our old buddy John Meacham has, has done biographies of both Thomas Jefferson and, and Winston <laughs> Churchill and both are, are these laudatory hero worshiping biographies as well? <laughs> Somehow, I'm not surprised. Joe Biden's favorite historian. Yeah, he's he's on the case. He's 40 years behind, but he's on the case. <laughs> he is a competent steward of failing history. Yes, he is. Okay. Well, you know, it was during a protest over the killing uh, of George Floyd in the summer, well, in, in late May of 2020 of last year, that demonstrators in London had targeted the famed statue of Winston Churchill as part of the larger racial justice protests that stemmed from George Floyd's uh, murder. And uh, on the pedestal, uh, on the pedestal of the, the Winston Churchill statue, which stands in uh, Parliament Square there in London, someone uh, sp spray painted the words, excuse me, spray painted the words, quote, was a racist. Close quote. I like that because, you know, if we like nothing better in this podcast than historical revisionism, and, and if, when you got a statue, I guess the only way to revise it is through what's sometimes called uh, graffiti. But to, to us, that's that's a good historical revision right there, right? Just it is. With it, yeah, and an admirable economy of words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Three words. Was a racist. Uh, something that we struggle with. So we really we appreciate somebody who can who can sum up in, in so, so few words. Well, that's the end of the podcast today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Micro podcast. Well, to guard against further damage, uh, the government temporarily boarded up the statue, mm -hmm. drawing, I guess that was like building a wall around the statue or something, drawing a rebuke from Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, as you probably know, Josh, is himself a self-styled Churchill acolyte. Right. Without any of the courage or adventure or interesting parts of his life. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> and much more hair than I think Sir Winston yes. had. Uh, yeah, a self-styled Churchill acolyte who declared, quote, we cannot now try to edit or censor our past. What do you think? Is he right? Of course not. No, that's insane. Uh, the, the whole point of our, I mean, well, that's, that's, that's job security for us, right? The ability to, <laughs> to edit the past is, is what we do. It's such a profound misunderstanding of a guy who I think pretends to be an historian sometimes um, to, to think of the past as this fixed thing that we just kind of grab and then place on a pedestal and then it's just there forever. And then the gall of the idea that, you know, the statue itself, first of all, is, is 
an uneditable, you know, form of representation. Um, it's literally in stone, right? Or I don't know if it's stone or metal or something like that. You cannot edit it. You can either have it or not have it. Um, but then to build this permanent monument and then claim that people are trying to edit it um, and they shouldn't try to edit it is, uh, is particularly galling, I'll just say. Yeah, I agree. You know, it sort of speaks to this idea that certain histories once proclaimed are never to be what? Never to be revised, never to be interrogated, as we yes. say on today's episode, never to be, uh, you know, questioned even, uh, that somehow they are immutable and timeless and like the statue itself, uh, you know, built for the long haul, apparently, I guess. Yeah, and it's, it gives tremendous amounts of power to the people who write the original narratives of these things, right? Because then their version somehow becomes set in stone, like a statue, um, as, as the version. And anybody else who tries to contest it then becomes, you know, as, as, uh, as would be charged in the, the, the George W. administration, historical revisionism or something like that, or, uh, you know, people trying to edit or censor the past or something like that. But... Um, but there's no reason to assume that the original version of these stories is the correct one or the best one or the one that uh, accords most with truth or, or, or morals or justice or any of the things that we should be seeking out as historians. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if, if you're suggesting, as Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson does, that these are somehow, um, you know, unedible, timeless uh, histories, uh, then, you know, I, I can't think of anything actually more contingent that is more contextually specific than a group of people getting together in the first place, what group, we don't know, getting together, self-appointed to decide that a statue must, must be commissioned, you know, hiring what, a, you know, a sculptor who then, you know, invests his own vision of something into the work uh, and then providing for some allotted space through whatever process uh, civic or otherwise, you know, to, to, to end up putting the thing, you know, at every step of the way in that process, there was a motive, uh, an intended outcome, uh, what we might call what an editorial bias going yep. into the thing, if nothing else, artistic license, uh, and then to have it done and call it timeless and uneditable is, uh, well, that's quite a sleight of hand, isn't it? It really is. Uh, this has got me thinking of something that's going to seem off topic, but I swear I'll bring this back. Uh, my middle son is a big fan of Kanye West, and uh, Kanye's got this thing now within the, this, the age of streaming music where he puts out an album, and then even after he puts it out, he keeps editing it. And so if you listen to it one day, you can come back the next day, and there will be like different songs, different mm -hmm. people singing, different, mm -hmm. different beats and this sort of thing, which is a mess, and we sh shouldn't do that with music. But I mean, that's, a be that's actually a better way of thinking about how historians work than, than this idea of a, of a statue um, or some kind of original narrative as, uh, as uneditable and fixed in, in place. We should be like Kanye, I think, and continually go back these things and fix the things that don't sound right and change the things that don't, uh, that don't, that don't work um, and try to create a better, truer um, uh, sort, sort of history. So. I never thought I would say this, but we should follow Kanye as, as historians. We should be following Kanye West, not as a thinker, by the way, of the past, uh, but just his willingness to keep going back and trying to fix things he doesn't like, which, again, terrible idea for music, but a great idea for, for historians, I would say. Yeah. Uh, well, I, OK, I mean, I have a couple things in mind here. You know, <laughs> yeah. one is that I was I, I, I was sort of going the other direction with Kanye there. I thought, 
Well, that's that's actually kind of cool to the extent that you're invited into some kind of artistic process, right. you know, where he's he's going through his own work and, and tweaking it. I mean, you know, Lord knows that's what I do every time I walk into a classroom. You know, the first yeah, thing I tell the true. students is, remember everything I told you yesterday? Forget about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, this is what you really need to know today. So. Yeah, and, they're, and they're just wondering, well, which part is going to be in the test? I don't understand. I don't want I don't want new information. I just want the one thing you tell me and then I'm going to follow that. But uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then... Uh, I don't know. I guess it, it sort of negates my idea that we should have, instead of making this podcast, we should have just created a history against the grain statue because that way everything <laughs> we put into it could never be changed or questioned. But, you know, you talk me down. It's a great idea. Although our podcast at this point is uneditable and uneditable. <laughs> it exists uh, forever in the uh, in the tubes of the Internet, I think. And it, yeah, it the, fir the firmament, the ether. Right. Uh, well, that's comforting at, at least, you know, uh, look, you know, one of these things, you know, getting back to Winnie for a second, uh, Prime Minister Churchill, is that, uh, you know, we also read in conjunction with the, you know, the statue business is as there's been a volume now, uh, a biography, what we might call an iconoclastic single volume biography that attempts to take the great man off his pedestal a bit. And, you know, in the world of biography, though, this sort of thing happens more often, I guess, we would say that biographies are, are what fawning yes. and laudatory of their subjects. Um, but, but yeah, not, not in this case. And, and the reviewer uh, who was reviewing the book in the times says, well, you know, the reviewer himself was kind of struggling with this, right. You know, because you have this iconic figure, Churchill and and, uh, you know, all these sort of things now are being said about his, his, his behavior and his, uh, his ideology, uh, you know, all the sort of what I guess they might consider uh, his darker uh, yes. aspects. And the reviewer said, it doesn't mean we shouldn't remember the darkest for history is not one dimensional, nor are its protagonists. Churchill was indeed a complicated figure, one who's stirring defense of Britain at its moment of maximum peril. And I would have guessed that was the breakup of the Beatles, but <laughs> he's really talking about World War II. Uh, at its moment of maximum peril, and by extension, that of Western civilization, overshadows less worthy parts of his record. And I think that merited, um, you know, one of those orange-faced, angry texts from me to you, Josh, I think that so, you yeah. love so much. Uh, you've become kind of a connoisseur, I think, of these uh, sorts of moments that I have. And, uh, you know, the thing that we couldn't quite get over there was, again, where, you know, the tendency here is to want to see Churchill's less worthy parts. Yes. You, you know, in other words, like warmongering, Force racism, famine. Yeah. <laughs> genocide. Yeah, those those kinds of things. His less worthy parts somehow at odds with or apart from what the uh, author of the piece called Western Civilization. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's a problem for me. I call that uh, uh, disassociation, you know, borrowing from our friends in psychology. I call that disassociation because, in fact, all those qualities of Churchill and in, in, I think certainly as I would have it. I think maybe you would agree. Uh, but but anyone taking perhaps a you know even a cursory look at the history of Western civilization would likely understand is it far from being 
at odds with Western civilization or apart from Western civilization, that those are the very qualities that Western civilization has inhered for centuries. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And the, 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 the uh, word that always gets me in these, these kind of things is people in the past are always, they're complicated figures. And by complicated, they mean they did horrible things to people, but they also have this one thing that we should celebrate. That doesn't sound very complicated to me, actually. It sounds pretty, pretty obvious. And this is something that I think a lot of, of particularly, I think, historians of empire have, have become very attuned to, is that the defense of empire, and, and, and Churchill, of course, is so uh, you know, wrapped up in, in British imperialism, um, you know, maybe one of the leading voices of imperialism, one of the great uh, supporters of imperialism, one of the popularizers of imperialism. But there's this idea that the defenders of imperialism like to like to state that you can kind of do a, an account book. And yes, there's some there's some bad things and you can put that on one side of the ledger and the other side, though, there's good things. Um, I want to quote this uh, uh, Indian historian, Kim Wagner, who says um, uh, he says, we must be willing to face the oftentimes uncomfortable realities of the empire instead of taking comfort in some ahistorical moral calculation according to which railways make up for massacres, right? That it's, it's how, <laughs> how psychotic is it to have a ledger and on one side is we built a railway and the other side is we murdered, you know, X amount of people. Um, those are not comparable things. Those, and one thing does not cancel the other thing out. Churchill's quote unquote stirring defense of Britain um, you know, itself is is impossible to actually quantify in any way. He wasn't standing there, you know, astride uh, the the, the uh, shores of Britain, holding off a Nazi invasion force or anything like that. He made some speeches. He made some decisions. We have no evidence that you know his actions during World War II um, couldn't have been replicated by somebody else. And yet, that whole thing, that whole myth of him standing athwart Britain, saving it from from the Nazis, therefore saving the world from the Nazis is so built into that myth and it's completely um, unprovable, right? And so then that becomes the thing that stands apart from three million dead Bengalis uh, who, who starved because of his policies or uh, his, his um, policies in the Middle East post-World War I, which really are continue to, to really um, affect the way the Middle East uh, still is today. Um, all these things which are horrific and have huge consequences that go on decades after his death, those aren't wiped away because he made a good speech one time in 1939 or anything like that. Yeah, it's really important, you know, that that I think, you know, we're, we're, we're clear here. It's not just a matter of some, sometimes critics say, oh, listen, you know, you're just, you're into shame and blame. Yep. You know, you're always looking for the, uh, you know, the morbid or something, you know, the, uh, the downbeat, you know, in these otherwise great systems, you know, and you and I have laughed about that before, you know, like, for example, we talk about slavery in the American context. And sometimes, you know, conservatives will say, we were the, we were the people who abolished slavery, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. taking credit for the thing that, you know, the same system had created and fostered for centuries. And so that's why I'm always so, you know, sensitive to the idea that, that, if you are going to, you know, sort of be magnanimous after all and admit that, well, yes, Winston, you know, he was involved in some not so savory things. Well, bully for you, but let's be clear, this isn't even really about a single person. This isn't, after all, about idol worship 
you know, and we're not going to reduce the history to the the, the person, you know, the figure right. on the statue, because what Churchill was was a was a product of that Western civilization. Yes. And so what we're really looking at isn't so much, you know, like when we were kids and I had my baseball cards and you had yours and we were arguing about, you know, was Mickey Mantle greater than Willie Mays or something? <laughs> you know, we're not getting into that kind of partisan, you know, sort of, uh, you know, adulation. We're saying that Churchill is a problem because Churchill represents a tradition of society, uh, civilization, as it were, of systems of power and expansion of empire, you know, of racial dominance and these sorts of things, of militarism. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that far from those darker qualities, again, being somehow at odds with that civilization, these things were created by that civilization. And so we need to understand, and I think those more fundamental ways you know, why the cause and effect of these things, you know, you, you and I were laughing yesterday because I said, look, if we, you know, if we removed all those sort of quintessential features of Western civilization that get labeled savory or, you know, uh, uh, you know, sociopathic or something, mm -hmm. yeah, what, what are we, what's left? Yeah. You know, if we take all that stuff away and I had just kiddingly, I had said Mozart yeah. and you, to which you said, <laughs> Well, that, that he was uh, basically a, a patron of the um, of the the Habsburg Empire, right? He's, he's, exactly. He's serving empire even. So, um, yes. yeah, you, you, there's everybody's complicit in this, right? That there's no way you can separate all these things and, and imagine, well, you know, this is nice, but then this other thing is is horrific, and the horrific thing always ends up being the exception, which then can be pushed aside, and the nice stuff always ends up being central to the idea of you know Western civilization or nationalism, or whatever whatever you want to you want to mm -hmm. say. But, you know, that's not how we should be doing history, right? separating out these things one from the other and then assessing the good from the bad and talking about what's central and what's uh, what's peripheral and all this kind of stuff. It's all part of the story. Um, and, you know, to go to go back to the review that, that we were talking about, um, it's a review of a book by a guy named Wheatcroft. Um, I think it's called The Case Against Winston Churchill, I want to say. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning his name. Yeah. And um you know, he makes the point because he's obviously writing this this biography that goes against that heroic notion of, of of Churchill. He says, if I make much of Churchill's failures and follies, he adds, that's partly because others have made too little of them since his rise to heroic status. That that this kind of history is necessary, not just as, well, here's this thing that's, you know, up on this pedestal and I want to tear it down because it's up above me. It's necessary because because so much of the way these figures who have been uh, turned into statues are presented is to get rid of all that comp complexity, to uh, elevate certain uh, aspects of their life while hiding or erasing other aspects of it. And it makes stuff like Wheatcroft's book necessary, right? Without that adulation, without the hero worship, without the statues, you don't need to write these kind of books um, that, 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 that Wheatcroft did. So, you know, he's doing a service and, and these kind of books do a service because they, they do take these myths of our society, myths of the nation, myths of our civilization and help to um, to uh, open them up to real scrutiny, I would say. Yeah, and it's that scrutiny or what, you know, we're calling today interrogation yeah. that I think really gets at the heart of what we want to say, not just in this episode, but, you know, what we've been talking about now uh, for over 50 episodes yeah, crazy. is that, is that uh, 
you know, we, we want a history that serves us, not a history that makes us sick. And, and, and you and I were talking about that yesterday as we were thinking of ways in connection with our teaching and even our podcasts and such, you know, in terms of how we can present that, you know, mm -hmm. is there a metaphor or some analogy that would sort of render it uh, easier to, to view? Because, you know, when you, when you get all that hero worship, and the artistry that goes into the statue, the the kind of magic that a sculptor, you know, can create to capture some a fancied quality. You know, it's hard not to be, you know, a, a little bit affected by it. You know, if you're standing, I mean, I've stood, as I've said before, you know, in a place like, say, the Jefferson Memorial, yeah. and there's this large bronze, you know, statue figure of Jefferson that, uh, you know, dominates the center. It's a beautiful sort of, you know, uh, neoclassical kind of Greek, Greco-Roman temple design, mm -hmm. all in marble with the words. And it's hard not to feel a little something when you're when you're in the the, the presence of it. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh, because these things are designed to have that kind of a effect, you know. Right. But um, so so when you know, when you start talking about why it's problematic, you know, the response is almost, hey, what's wrong with you? Don't you think anything's sacred? Don't you admire great works? You know, what's wrong with, you know, you know Churchill's speech was, you know, was extraordinary. You know, uh, uh, you know, what's so, are you just ungrateful? What's wrong with you? you know? yeah. And so you, you end up playing defense. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, what you know, so we were talking about how we can kind of frame something that gets us out of that trap, you know, the idol, you know, the idol worship trap mm -hmm. or something. And uh, and we were thinking, you know, because part of what a guy like Johnson is saying and others, you know, is saying that this sort of history, and they used to call it this, Josh, in the 20th century, uh, right up uh, until probably the, the Second World War, before a lot of these kinds of things were destroyed, uh, these conceits were destroyed, is that, you know, they would talk about scientific history. Yeah. And that's a lot of the source, the kind of wellspring from which a lot of these these narratives and views of history come, created in the 19th century, you know, in the in the great works of the German historian von Neranke and uh, and following, you know, through the development of graduate school and the professionalization of history. The idea was to create a scientific history such that the historical insights we could gain would be in their own way just as you know, irrefutable, I suppose, as the, uh, you know, as they imagined at least the insights of, of science were. Well, that's sort of a bad take on science because not science, instead of being irrefutable, is constantly self-questioning, yes. right? But there was this popular notion that somehow, you know, once Newton said it was true forever. Uh, and that was sort of a, you know, a bad take, as I say, on science, but that was the popular view of it. And so when you talked about a scientific history, this idea of immutability, eternal truths, you can't edit the past, it's already happened, you know, sort of takes hold. But we said it's awful science. It's really, it's a bad analogy. It's bad science. And we were saying a better analogy would be really, you know, if you as a, a say, as a medical patient, you know, were suffering ill health, and you went to the doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And said, asked the doctor for a diagnosis. And the doctor said, well, you know, I, I, I really can't tell you 
you know, what's going on in, inside you, because that would be to edit or censor <laughs> what I'm seeing on the surface here. And on the surface, you appear okay to me, mm -hmm. you know, and you would say, yeah, but unless you diagnose me, in other words, unless you interrogate <laughs> what's happening, you ask questions and, and offer, uh, you know, offer evidence and, and, and analysis of that evidence and such, you know, I'm never going to be properly treated. In other words, whether it be a, a cancer, a diabetes, or gallstones, or what have you, sciatica, you know, any of the myriad issues, you know, unless we get to that interrogation of what's going on in there, you know, I, I'm, I'm not ever going to recover my health. And so, yeah, I think at least uh, it seemed yesterday in, in, uh, at, the, at the moment we were using that analogy that maybe that was a better frame for why we need to interrogate the past. Uh, because if we don't, then those problems that are embedded in that past, they really transcend any one person. That's why the problem with worshiping a statue is yeah. so um, so dangerous, is that unless we understand those systemic inherent you know, problems, you know, those in effect, those cancers of the system, uh, we're not going to have a chance for any kind of healthy recovery. No, and, and the metaphor works really well also because, you know, even like with a diagnosis, if you get diagnosed and you start getting treated and you don't get better, you're not just going to, mm -hmm. you know, you're not just going to keep doing the thing that's not working. You're going to go back in and try to figure mm -hmm. out what went wrong and, and, and make a better choice and, and present a better diagnosis. And that's, you know, that's ultimately what we should be doing. We can't be um, so precious with our with our historical ideas, so precious with our narratives that we're always unwilling to look at them again and, and rethink them and, and make them make sense and make them work better for what we're trying to do, which is understand who we are in light of who we, we used to be or who, who we've been in the past. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm in it. I mean, we, we have, we're, we're doctors technically, so I, I think this is very appropriate to use medical, uh, medical language or medical me metaphor. Finally. We are, we are authorized. Yeah to uh, operate surgically on the past, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, and, and we want, and in all seriousness, we want, and I think you captured it perfectly, you know, is we want um, folks to, to share in this idea that we're not just, um, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not just a bunch of hacks, you know, cutting up, you know, the sacred organs of our patient. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're trying to provide a constructive, um, reparative, healthful, uh, you know, operation that will put us in a better place uh, than, you know, we, we were before. And I, you know, look, I think what happens is, you know, the story gets set, yep. you know, it, it gets set like a statue, you know, mm -hmm. it becomes familiar. Uh, it seems on its surface to offer something inspiring and, and affirming. You know, and and then it, and then it just simply gets recycled. You know, it simply gets repeated and recycled and adored and fawned over, uh, and lauded. You know, um, in perpetuity, or or so so it would seem. But you know, part of what we're saying here today, and as we go now into our our second segment, is that stories are not inherently uh, in and of themselves uh, immutable. Uh, stories represent a flow, a temporal flow of time and experience, of place, of, of, of need and circumstances that address a fundamental, you know, human ability to imagine 
the world differently. Mm -hmm. And so when we start talking about stories like statues, as if they are fixed uh, and immutable, I think that's that's where we get into trouble. So we're going to we're going to go off here, as I say, into our next segment uh, and take a look at, um, you know, the conditions in which stories change. One of the things that you've really been on uh, for, for a while now that I think is really important is, is this idea, and going back to our title about interrogating history, is that that includes you know, the, the courses we teach, the way we think about the past, the way we present the past, um, that, that those stories are not, as we said, written in stone. There's nothing about our curriculum that's written in stone, that we constantly need to be not just telling history, but thinking about the history of the history we tell. Um, and it's so important because you know, it, it forces us to be aware of, of these things we take for granted in a way that I think sometimes can get lost when you're just kind of showing up in your class and telling the same story over and over again. It's simple to do that, but ultimately it's damaging to do that. Um, and so what, what you're going to talk about now is, is the way that, um, you know, you're actually going to be telling the history of, of history in a little bit, a little bit here. And in a way that I think for people who, who teach U.S. history is very, very instructive. And for people who just think about history in general, um, will really help uh, un understand the way that these, these things we take for granted themselves are constructed. And then they're, they're kind of presented in a way that they seem, as we, we said, immutable. But there's nothing immutable about these stories. So, so regale us with uh, the way the story has changed. Yeah, it is now story time, friends, with your old Uncle Chris. Well, you're absolutely right, Josh. You know, this is essentially the story of a story. And as we're going to see, it's a story that for a time will will sink very deep roots into American culture. And 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 look, in, in some ways is I, still, I, I think, uh, deeply rooted. Uh, and which reminds us that before we proclaim the death of a story, we ought to recognize that sometimes stories have afterlives. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and we are seeing evidence of that even in our own time. So I'll try to point that out, but at least uh, today, as I do what I'm calling sort of the first part of this story about a story, uh, I'll try to get us up to the, you know, a, a sort of recognizable point where we can see how the story will change and how that change is reflected in other facets than, uh, of American life. So yeah, one of the things I want to say is, you know, stories matter. Uh, stories are more than just, uh, what would you say, you know, uh, abstractions or artifice or something. In other words, we can tell many different kinds of stories about many kinds of things, but it, in every case, we're doing something that is inherently human. You know, I, th I think about when we had uh, Pat Manning on, you know, mm -hmm. and he was talking about syntactic language and sort of cognitive uh, evolution and and how from really the beginning of, of our recognizably homo sapien form, you know, in some facet or another, as they say, man was the storytelling animal. Yeah. And so we should treat them not simply as say, uh, you know, entertainment or, you know, something, uh, you know, presumably uh, non-essential. Stories really are the way that we have as a species navigated 
uh, ourselves through history. And, and so I'm going to try to point out the connections of the stories that I discuss today. No, that's, that's so important because you're absolutely right. The stories are essential to, to who we are and how we interact with each other, how we build societies. So we don't want to say, you know, let's take down these old stories um, just as, you know, a matter of course, right? The stories are important. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really important, therefore, to understand how these stories get constructed. Yeah, and, and, and to recognize also that even though, again, you may, you may think a story has been replaced or taken down, that stories really have a kind of eternal, eternal life somewhere in the story sphere, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, and, and even bad stories you know, can, can make a comeback as we'll see. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, look, uh, we know there's a grassroots movement going on around the country right now to lock down the history curriculum, uh, where local school boards are being assailed and, you know, bills passed in state legislatures to prevent, Oh, critical race theory mm-hmm. or, you know, different, uh, critical takes, uh, on, on history. Well, you know, that's not the first time that's happened. <laughs> and I almost feel like that's a historian's cliche, Josh, yeah. you know, as we're, you know, we sort of walk in self-importantly, you know, to the discussion and say, well, of course, this is not the first time that's happened. Which is why we're never invited to parties. <laughs> it was uh, no one wants us around yes. when they're talking about how we, you know, things always have been. Uh, but yeah, not for the first time. I have to go ahead and, uh, and say that. Uh, that is that is the locking down of a historical story with very specific parameters in regard to our past, that is U.S. history. Um, and a really good example of that comes with what I call the Moonlight and Magnolia. Well, I guess properly pronounced for dramatic effect, it'd be more like Moonlight and Magnolia. Much better. <laughs> Was that better? I, think I don't so. know. I got to work on. I, so. I got to work on my, my southern drawl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Moonlight Magnolia School is what historians sometimes call the uh, the romantic story of the old South. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably most famously encapsulated in the storytelling talents of the MGM Studios uh, in its famous motion picture Gone with the Wind, uh, which was released in Technicolor in 1939, uh, an Academy Award winning blockbuster, uh, which romanticized this story of what was then called the Old South, which, uh, you know, just as an aside, it's always kind of uh, seemed strange to me, the Old South. You know, by then it was only a couple of generations, right, since the Civil War. I mean, there's actually a much older South if we want to go deeper into the colonial history of America. But hey, listen, you know, again, I'm being a historian here and ruining everybody's good time. So, yeah, the old South, the Southern romance, Southern nostalgia uh, that built off what was called the lost cause of the Civil War. Uh, that Southern romance uh, was encapsulated not only in movies like Gone with the Wind and and uh, a couple decades earlier, A Birth of a Nation, two of the, the big blockbusters in early Hollywood history, by the way, both dealt with this issue of the old South and Southern romance. Uh, but also in Confederate statues, for mm-hmm. example, we mentioned the Robert E. Lee statue. Most of those Confederate statues, by the way, were erected in the 20th century, uh, a generation or two after the Civil War, you know, by groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, in order to enshrine this romantic notion of the lost cause, the great cause for which the South fought. 
the romance of the old South. Uh, let's take just a second to recall, because stories have their own, as you point out, their own histories. They have their own beginnings, if you will, as much as they may seem timeless, you know, as if they've just simply always been there. No, the, the old South story, we could probably find a couple of different origin points. But the one I'm thinking of today is, is the year 1915. 1915. So keep in mind, Gone with the Wind is 1939, the motion picture based on the novel by Margaret Mitchell, which was 1936. So we're only talking here about what, you know, a couple of decades really for this story to become really well entrenched. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we, ex we could extend it a little bit longer, maybe to another couple of decades, but nevertheless, this story becomes really well entrenched in a relatively short period of time. And it was in 1915, for example, that you get the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, an organization, a terrorist organization, racial terrorist organization, been formed after the Civil War, had been put out of business uh, for a few decades by the federal government, but enjoys a rebirth in 1915. And what occasioned the rebirth? Well, the the short term cause was the premiere of the movie Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. which was this this epic, you know, in the still in the in the silent era of Hollywood, right? This epic, one of the first big budget sort of epic Hollywood movies, directed by D. W. Griffith, called Birth of a Nation. That itself had been based on uh, primarily on a couple books by a guy named Thomas Dixon. Uh, who about a decade or so earlier had written one of those novels called The Klansman. Mm -hmm. So so basically, and I think we've talked about this before, and folks might know, you can actually watch, you could probably rent uh, Birth of a Nation on on uh, Amazon Prime or something now. I haven't, I haven't looked recently. But uh, yeah, it was uh, a story that told of the redemption of the South after the war, that is the defeated South after the Civil War, the redemption, the racial redemption of the South by none other than the Ku Klux Klan that came in like, uh, you know, knights in what? Shining white armor? armor? Yeah. No, yeah, I would say knights in- uh, Shining white clothes. In sheets, yeah. shining white sheets, yeah, in mass, came in uh, to uh, protect the honor of white Southerners against the rapacious um, and and uh, you know vile behavior of the former slaves. I mean that's that's in a nutshell the kind of framing here of of this story. But in 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 doing that, you know it, it framed this romance of the old South, uh, you know where plantations had been like uh, what like medieval fiefdoms or something, you know, out of the novels of. Walter Scott, uh, romantic novels of, you know, medieval times uh, with their white columned porticos, their hoop skirted bells. Oh, and heck, why not mint juleps, mm. you know? I mean, look, watch the first 10 minutes of Gone with the Wind and you get the whole thing. Uh, even the slave owners themselves, no attempt to, to you know, to deny that slavery existed. Instead, slave owners were seen and they were called masters, by the way, you know, again, hearkening back to a kind of medieval, you know, lordship or something, uh, who were the very embodiments of Southern honor and Southern paternalism, you know, dignified figures. Uh, for, the, for their part, the slaves, those who were enslaved were depicted in this romance as uh, people who were well cared for. You know, they were, they were content and docile and basically well served by you know being in the, the Christian rubric then of white uh, you know 
plant, plantation uh, authority. Well, I, I said it was romantic. It was romantic to folks who believed that somehow the greatest balance of racial and social order had been in the times of slavery. I mean, we're, we're saying Old South as a kind of code word to mean the South before slavery was abolished, right? So this uh, takes as its basic premise that instead of slavery being some great indefensible moral evil, that it was actually a noble form of sort of social harmony in which people in that romantic sense found their accustomed place in the natural hierarchy of things, in this case, with white over black, slave master over slave. Mm -hmm. And again, if you want an absolutely fantastic encapsulation of this, you don't even have to go the first 10 minutes of Gone With It. Just watch the, the kind of epigram that, that flows over the titles credits at the very beginning of the movie as the orchestral music plays and the incredible cinematography is lit, you know, the landscape in a golden glow. And it talks about, you know, cavaliers and their kingdom and, and fair maidens and slaves all in a single breath of, you know, romantic nostalgia. I love it. It's all, it's all text. There's no subtext there, <laughs> right? Really, really easy for an audience to figure out what's going on. You don't have to read between the lines, no, no. do you? <laughs> the lines are right there. All right. So, okay. So this is the basic story for him that is going to begin to take root about a generation after the Civil War. Um, you know, this was a time in American society of, of great change. The late 19th century, early 20th century, a tide of a rising tide of immigration, for example. In fact, the greatest immigration push in world history up to that point, something like 26 million uh, people will uh, will migrate to the United States from various points of, of, of Europe and the Far East between, oh, the mid-1870s and the 1920s. It was really an unprecedented, and that was just part of a global flow of migration that was really unprecedented in, uh, you know, uh, uh, the human past. Uh, and so what it's bringing to the United States upon these shores, you know, fresh with our our new Statue of Liberty, uh, you know, fronting, uh, you know, the harbor of New York with its uh, ultimately its uh, fabled words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Well, if, if you read between those lines, as many white um, nativists were doing at the time, it meant bring me your non-native English speaking, your non-Protestant Christian uh, colored people. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and as in the Lou Reed version of the song, uh, where he reframes it, the statue of bigotry, <laughs> Lou says, I'll spit on him. And I tell you, okay, Lou Reed taking, uh, taking there uh, a more cynical look at that familiar welcoming, right, of the immigrant masses uh, to the United States. And, and in fact, Lou's got a point because what all this inspires, this unprecedented migration, is a great wave of nativist, what we call nativist reaction. That is by white folk, mostly native English speaking, Protestant Christian folk, who somehow see their traditional entitlement, you know, to this society being somehow upended or threatened you know, you're going to get a whole range of anti-immigration laws starting in the 1880s with the Chinese Exclusion Acts, 
eventually laws here in California written against uh, Japanese immigration as well as Chinese and a host of laws, including national laws like the National Origins Act of 1924, right? That, that also uh, reduces immigration going forward to a tiny quota of people coming from those non-English speaking places, non-native English speaking Protestant Christian places. So if you were Southern European, Eastern European, if you were, you know, perhaps Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Jewish, uh, let alone if you were coming from Asia, it was going to be harder for you now by the 1920s to get into the country. Well, all right. So the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the middle of this. And by the way, the Klan that's reinvented in 1915, it's not your mother's Klan. It's a, uh, a much more equal opportunity kind of bigotry that the new clan um, is peddling in the 1950s, or 1915 to 1920s. Their, uh, their slogan was native white Protestant supremacy. Mm -hmm. So no longer just an anti-black organization, Josh. The clan was willing to extend its uh, program of vitriol to just about everybody who wasn't, uh, you know, going to be in a Norman Rockwell painting. And, and that's why the 1920s are so much more interesting than what, you know, kids always did, you know, for decades, decades day when they did the 20s, you know, you would, you know, dress up what, I don't know, it was a, fl a flapper yeah. or something, you know. And Prohibition then, and, and Great Depression, that was, that was the range yeah, of it. But, well, but there's a real dark edge to the 20s, yeah. you know, not only the Klan reached the height of its membership of about 5 million members by the mid-decade, mid but also, you know, things like the Scopes trial, for example, right? The uh, the attack on Darwinian evolution being taught in the schools, mm -hmm. which gets us back to that trying to lock the story down yep. business, you know. You get the Sacco Vanzetti uh, trial, the murder trial, the famous Italians and, you know, and the prosecutor uh in Boston, you know, made more about the fact that these were supposedly anarchists than the actual evidence mm. that could, could be, you know, compiled against them. You have the FBI kind of running amok in the 20s, you know, rounding up immigrants, so-called radicals and and deporting the so-called Palmer raids right after World War One, you know, where people, including some native born American people, are being uh, literally deported from the country, you know, in what was called the Soviet Ark. Uh, to the newly formed Soviet Union, you know. So anybody who strayed too far outside the boundaries of political orthodoxy also being targeted. Lots of anti-immigrant stuff, as I said, going on. Uh, all of which, by the way, when we get to World War II and the Japanese internment, as I often remind my students, all of that was was building. It, it just took, I guess, the Pearl Harbor attack or something in December of 41 to to kind of tip the, the scales. But, you know, prior to that time, Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants were already coming in for a lot of nativist abuse. And, you know, again, places like California, the Pacific Coast. So what does all this then have to do with Moonlight and Magnolia? <laughs> it's a it's a good question, isn't it? A great question. Let's. <laughs> this is where we earn our the, the big bucks as the historical surgeons we are. Yeah, because we can find these connections. Look, I guess it doesn't take too much to imagine that that highly romanticized, highly nostalgic, highly whitewashed view of a better, older time, the old South, offered a kind of reassuring roadmap for how America should be governed in this modern age. And what I mean by that is everything from those anti-immigrant laws 
to the ongoing and deepening presence of what we call Jim Crow, right? Racial segregation in this country was somehow given what? It's it's imprimatur, you know, of, of the old South romance. Because look, the fundamental conclusion is if that was a better time when white people were on top and colored people were beneath them, and that was somehow the organic nature of things, then what sort of legislation might you expect in the 20s and 30s with regard to things like immigration and even uh, segregation? You would, you would expect that assertion of white nationalism, wouldn't you? Yeah, and it really connects something that you started with, which is you know this idea that that, that old South myth takes on so quickly, and, and you can really see it takes on so quickly specifically because it's serving the needs of, of a population who's looking for ways of making sense of this world that's becoming, you know, less white, less Protestant, uh, less maybe male dominated to a certain extent. Right. And that that this mm-hmm. this this version of the past uh, becomes this this ideal that they want to hearken back to. Right. At a time when oh, things yeah. are changing more quickly than, than they're prepared for. And that's not def- to defend them. But when you see an idea take hold so quickly, it's almost always because it's serving a need that's not otherwise being served amongst a segment of the population. So it, it really, you know, I think you really highlighted the way that that, that connection, um, you know, kind of built up the idea of the old South is it, it, it provided value. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. It provided value, it provided a kind of racial capital, right? Mm-hmm. That could be spent now in the politics of the thirties of the great depression. Oh, and, and, you know, look with, with the crash of wall street, the famous crash of Wall Street in 29 and the deepening economic crisis, how much more appealing then was that um, sort of nostalgic model of when things used to be better, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it was relatively easy even to blame something like economic hard times on what? The fact that the racial order, the organic racial order had something somehow what gone out of whack, you right. know, that, that, that the natural orbit had somehow spiraled off into chaos or something, you know, and that the uh, solution therefore was to bring it back into its natural order. So yeah, when folks finished watching, you know, gone with the wind in 1939 and, you know, and applauding, you know, uh, the, the, the movie as the, as the end credits rolled, you know, in effect, what what they were saying is this is what who America really is supposed to be. And to the extent we can approximate that, you know, natural order of things, then, you know, presumably what presumably things will return to the good old days, mm-hmm. as it were, you know, which is kind of remarkable, because as we've said before, right, Josh, it was the South that lost that yes. civil war, <laughs> right? And I think we credit uh, your mom, right? Yeah. You know, to saying, you know, if winners write history, that's not what happened after the Civil War, because yeah. the, the 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 story that gets written into the fabric of the culture is not the story of the winners, but the story of the the defeated South, the lost cause, which then becomes, as I say, imbued with all this nostalgia and longing. Uh, and I should mention, by the way, um, that it was also the adjunct story to the Civil War, and it's treated in the movie Gone with the Wind itself and, and, and Birth of a Nation, which is the era of reconstruction that followed, right? We, we, we sometimes ignore the what happened next part of that story. But reconstruction is also part of the storytelling form then 
that that begins to regard what happened after Reconstruction as a great and tragic mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is as as sort of annexed to the old South story, the great and tragic mistake of Reconstruction. And you know, why do you suppose? that it fits so well in this tradition. Why, after all, was Reconstruction seen as a tragic mistake? What great sin had the country, or at least part of the country, tried to commit during Reconstruction? Well, they tried to upset that racial hierarchy that was so fundamental to the, the, the structure of that society and, and self-identity and and um, the, the economy. And it, basically, every segment of, of that old South was defined by that racial caste, that racial hierarchy. And, yep. and so upsetting it, you know, then left people um, uh, bereft, I guess, of the thing that they they saw as defining them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's that's perfect because, and and if we were to zero in on on it, we'd say the the first and tragic mistake in in somehow tampering with that racial hierarchy that you mentioned was giving the former slaves political rights, mm-hmm. well, well, rights whatsoever, yeah. not just political rights, but human rights, constitutional rights, the 14th Amendment, you know, it'll be passed during Reconstruction promises that the, the former slaves would have now all the same rights of due process afforded to any citizens of the country, right? The same constitutional rights, uh, which settled their status because as freedmen, it wasn't clear they were no longer slaves they would be citizens, right? Mm -hmm. That was the point. Uh, And that was the first of the terrible mistakes. Obviously, the 15th Amendment, then endowing black men, you know, that the the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged on the basis of race. So allowing for black men, because remember, women at the time were not constitutionally entitled to vote. Giving black men the right to vote was the second great fatal mistake. In other words, According to the Gone with the Wind view, according to the Moonlight Magnolia, the old South story form, you had to continue into Reconstruction to appreciate just how wrong this this experiment, what Eric Foner called the the the, the world's first great experiment in re- interracial democracy, just how wrong that experiment was. Foner didn't think it was wrong, by the way, but those, I mean, he's writing in the 1980s. If you had been reading about Reconstruction from the late 19th century right on up through the 1940s, almost certainly you would have read accounts of Reconstruction being a tragic mistake, which tried to upset the natural order of things to, you know, to somehow endow non-white people with any kind of, uh, you know, constitutional identity or rights or anything of that sort. And 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 here's the thing. I mean, look, this is how it's depicted. Almost universally throughout the culture, you know, whether it be movies, Hollywood movies, but also in, say, school textbooks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think think of all those immigrant kids going to public school, you know, uh, being, you know, sort of confronted, you know, with 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 with, with U.S. history. Right. You know, coming coming from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, you know, being confronted now in a kind of citizenship, I mean, because these stories, these histories taught in these public schools are in, are intended to do what? To assimilate those yeah. kids, right? The reason you learn the American story as an immigrant, especially, is it so you know how better to conform to what it means to be an American. And so the stories that you're getting, the kind of gospel you're getting of the American past, are, are you know, being framed in these explicitly racial these explicitly racial terms. And I want to just give you a, a few examples uh, 
if you're hungry here uh, for some old school U.S. history. Yeah, let me just say real quick, because I, I mean, that's I, I was in elementary school in the 80s and I, I I absolutely remember being taught, you know, about Reconstruction, which maybe was the only time I got taught about it, Reconstruction. But, you know, that mm -hmm. while the 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 goals were were good, you know, and citizenship and, and the right to vote for black men and, you know, but there's also a huge emphasis on carpetbaggers and corruption and yeah. and all that kind of yep. stuff. And there was no there's no counter to that. That was just the, the version of the story that. And it's such a, a very 80s version of that because the explicit racism of the earlier, uh, you know, maybe uh, narratives of Reconstruction are are not as clear anymore because it, it does say that the, the the goals are laudable and that sort of thing. But there still right. is that idea that well, but the way it was practiced is the problem. Um, it's almost like the the the, the version of of Churchill, right? That um, well, yes, he had some he had some some bad parts, but but ultimately we don't need to focus on those, right? <laughs> The, yeah, the statue of Reconstruction was was a flawed one as well. <laughs> oh yeah, and and let's face it. I mean, when we think of statues now in a, in a contemporary, you know, a political climate, you know, we're most often talking about statues that were erected on behalf of this old South story, right? You know, whether they be the, you know, the Confederate uh, war figures or or you know whatnot. Uh, what what folks still like to claim are somehow their their heritage, you know, as Southerners, yeah. as as white Southerners. So yeah, this is very unapologetic, and that's what I want to say. Nobody was embarrassed about this stuff at the time. Who was who was actually telling these stories, right? Uh, let me give you a couple examples okay. from 1880 to 1917. So almost a 40 year period. The historian James Schuler authored a multi-volume work called History of the United States Under the Constitution. Now, unless you think these were some, you know, sort of crack crackpot, you know, historians on the margin, this, this guy was a, and you'll be happy and, and reassured to know, Josh, a Harvard graduate. <laughs> I never could have guessed. Okay. Yeah. Do I need to, do I repeat that? Uh, yeah, Harvard graduate. And like his fellow Harvard grad, George Bancroft, who was seen as sort of the father of U.S. history, uh, Schuler served as president of the American Historical Association, which then as now arguably is the premier professional organization for historians in the United States um, based on its own um you know, history and self-description, I suppose. I'm sure membership uh, too, right? It's probably the largest. Yeah, membership, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, Schuler's History of the United States spent the better part of its seven volumes, Jesus. you know, safely on what I would call the freedom-slavery binary. That is, when you talk about ignoring the darker parts, that would be the slavery side, mm. spending it safely on the freedom-slavery uh, binary. But when it got around to addressing the inconvenient fact of those who had been enslaved, he assured the reader, Schuler did, that, quote, the innate patience, docility, and childlike simplicity of the Negro, close quote, meant that black folks had been, well, well served mm -hmm. under paternal care of white slave owners. Yeah, in, in Schuler's imagination, Negroes were members of a, quote, servile race who were, quote, easily intimidated and incapable of deep plots. So this was a kind of subchapter of the story of the romantic, uh, you know, Old South, is that one of the reasons why Black people were so happy while they were enslaved is because they possessed nothing in their inherent character that would have led them to revolt against their own enslavement. 
In other words, they were sort of nature's own servant, I guess, on huh, Yeah, and what's what's interesting here is is how much this kind of discord discourse is transnational because the discourse about imperialism is so similar to that that discourse about about um, the old South, I guess. Um, now imperialism was still ongoing as opposed to, to slavery, which had been been abolished. But that that same idea that you know you could see some some authors would be you know they would lament the need for empire or the need for for these kinds of power structures, but also continually point to the nature of of the colonized and what would they do without us? And you know yes they rebel, but that's because they're not politically mature enough to understand mm -hmm. you know what we're giving them mm -hmm. this sort of thing. It, it it really does suggest that there's there's a conversation going on here all you know across the Atlantic and around the world, um, which is is seeking to tell stories that will maintain this kind of white dominance of the world and, and justify it in a way that's not based on you know kind of uh, uh, mustache twirling evil people, but um, what what Johannes Fabian called the honest and intelligent agents of imperialism, right? That they're trying to they're trying to present themselves as yes. somehow better than <laughs> this old version of racism which was just about cruelty and bar barbarism. They're saying, no, no, it's not about that. This is actually about um, charity in some ways, right? Absolutely. Um, it was seen as a, a almost uh, beneficent yes. or, yeah, you know, to uh, what, what they would have called uplift, yes, right? Exactly, you know, yeah. to take a, a, a people who were, you know, not yet civilized and sort of bring them into the fold of your, you know, your, your Christian beneficence. Mm -hmm. uh, well, look, a similar storyline was found in any number of other popular mainstream U.S. history textbooks. And I'm talking about for decades now, Josh. This wasn't just some, you know, sort of brief episode that was, you know, sort of authored and forgotten. No, uh, a, a textbook long running, um, you know, in the in the curriculum of, of U.S. history educated, the growth of the American Republic, one of whose authors, Samuel Eliot Morrison, yeah. uh, was both a Harvard grad and longtime Harvard history professor. The double whammy. Yeah, I want I want to make sure I'm doing this for you. I want to get Harvard into this, the complicity of this uh -huh. story as often as I can. Uh, and no longer should it be surprising. Also, he was the president of the American Historical yeah. Association as well. Uh, according to the narrative of this popular textbook, not only were slaves well fed, well cared for and happy, but considering the backwardness of Akron people, wrote Morrison, there was much to be said for slavery as a transitional status between barbarism and civilization. So yeah, there you go, right? Doing the Lord's work. Similar statements were commonplace in other US history textbooks well into the 20th century. Uh, in fact, upon considering the meager treatment of black lives in the history textbooks of his age, the great uh, black scholar and critic W.E.B. Du Bois concluded that a student might quote, in all probability complete his education without any idea of the part which the black race has played in America. And uh, you can see where he's coming from when you look at these things, right? Uh, historian John Hicks, uh, who was a longtime University of California Berkeley historian, a Virginian by birth, uh, Hicks wrote in his 1937 textbook, The Federal Union, A History of the United States to 1865, uh, Hicks wrote that readers should be reassured that slaves got, quote, much positive enjoyment out of life and that they, quote, loved to sing and dance, were generally blessed with a keen sense of humor and rarely fretted when treated well. Uh, Hicks went on to say, 
uh, a distinguished historian, by the way, as I say, a Berkeley historian, went on to say that the it was the hypersexual nature of enslaved black women uh, that was a reason for the birth of so many mixed race children in America. So, so uh, Professor Hicks, uh, to the extent that he was going to interrogate the reality of mixed race people living in America, was satisfied to chalk it up to uh, not sexual assault and depredation by slave owners, but rather to the hypersexual nature of enslaved black women. Are you getting all this down, Josh? Because there will it's, be a quiz. It's wild. Uh, I mean, the, the singing and dancing part, that's that's like the equivalent of the railways making it for massacre stuff. It's like, yes, it was a brutal and violent institution, but right. they did love to sing and dance. So you know, who can say whether it's good or bad in the end? Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, let, let me take us out here uh, with one more example. Thomas Bailey's The American Pageant. I want to be clear. Mm, that's your favorite uh, title. Confuse it with my own, my own last name, uh, yes. sound alike. Maybe. Before we even started this Pageant. podcast, you used to make fun of that book. So that's how I know. <laughs> it's, it's deep in your psyche. Thank you. Uh, sometimes people mispronounce my last name by saying pageants. Yes. So this is a particularly sensitive part you know, for me. Thomas Bailey's The American Pageant, A History of the Republic, uh, first published in 1956 now uh, and still available for classroom use, uh, had originally in its first edition said that, quote, the average ex-slave was essentially a child, mm. close quote, to whom giving the right to vote was a mistake. Uh, yeah, it was due to the poor behavior of the ex-slave, explained Bailey, that the Ku Klux Klan was, quote, goaded to desperation and forced to take savage measures. Hmm. Well, just for good measure, Josh, now, Professor Bailey, as president, and he was a Stanford, longtime Stanford uh, professor. I want to give equal treatment to, to Cal and Stanford here. Uh, just for good measure, as president of the American Historical Association in 1968, Professor Bailey, in his presidential speech that year, by the way, I was five years old, so I'm, now we're safely into my own lifetime mm -hmm. here. Professor Bailey uh, gave a, a presidential speech to the AHA and he called African-Americans, quote, African-Americans, a newly formed hyphenate group and warned in his keynote address that the promotion of black history would result in, quote, hard-backed Negro histories of the United States with a white man's achievement relegated to subsidiary treatment. Wow. So that's 1968, you know, a time when things are changing yes. pretty quickly. Um, how did that go over, by, by the way? Well, you know, it's interesting because it was a kind of threshold moment for the country because you had decolonization, civil rights, black power. So he's very much reacting to those contemporary developments in a kind of reactionary way, right? By by defending, in this case, what he sees as the privileged claims of, you know, what as a historian of writing American history with a kind of you know, solidly white, you know, uh, uh, story implotment. In other words, he's as much defending what he sees as the prerogatives of his own entitlement to write history that way as he is to some larger claim, you know, on America's, uh, you know, race relations. Now, how did it go over? Well, 
look, I mean, it, d- it depends on who who you asked, right? Um, there were a fair number of those who, at the time in the history profession, would have uh, absolutely understood what Bailey was saying. I mean, look, at this time, for example, Harvard, just to pick on Harvard some more, still had no full-time, say, Black history course, Mm -hmm. you know, no African-American history course, no no Black studies uh, department. I mean, those were all things that were underway, but as of yet, still had not managed to breach that solid white, you know, boundary, if you will, of the profession and of uh, academia. And more than a few historians were upset about these developments like Bailey, too, because they saw the attempt to write Black lives into American history, to U.S. history, as being what we might call what uh, trendy, as a as a mere trend, a kind of fashion of the politics of the day, you know, where it became fashionable on college campuses for you know students uh, to rally around, you know, some sort of civil rights banner, or like at, at Berkeley, the free speech movement, yeah. etc. That this was all just part of a kind of upstart trend really that would pass you know as soon as it expended its its energies yeah. of course it wasn't it wasn't going to pass but that was a reaction now the other thing though that i would say about this is i'm sort of rounding it off here today is that what he was talking about wasn't just the product of the 1960s i mean this attempt to write black lives into history certainly there was a lot of very vital scholarship that was being undertaken really ever since the end of World War II, you know, in the larger frame of of global history and, as I say, decolonization movements and, you know, uh, colonial independence movements, these kinds of things, uh, as well as global civil rights movement. But even before then, Josh, even before World War II, there was a dedicated core of historians who were working and making great strides, I should add, to not only in effect, unearth and excavate the history of black lives, but then to create coherent historical narratives in which the story of those black lives could then be entered into the larger frame, be it national history or even global history. I mean, some of the first Africa diaspora histories are being done in the uh, 1910s and and 20s. But what's the trick here? Who's doing that work? Is it the American Historical Association? Is it Harvard historians? You know, is it is it Berkeley and Stanford historians? No. Who's doing that work? I mean, imagine it's going to be people on the on the periphery, which means uh, probably left wing people and and, and black folks as well um, doing that and being ignored because their politics or their race didn't fit in with the, the, the you know, kind of dominant uh, power structure of, of, of that time. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, all I'm going to do is just reverse the order of it. I mean, it's black historians and then by degrees uh, left leftist or, or we'll call radical historians mm-hmm. are coming out of a particular political movement seeking to, you know, expose the, uh, the racial injustices and economic injustices of America's past. But first and foremost, it's black historians. So as early as 1916, you have uh, Carter G. Woodson, sometimes known as the father of black history in this country himself, uh, just the second PhD, black PhD in history 
after uh, Du Bois. Carter Whitson founds the Association for the Study of Negro History and Life in 1916 and begins publication of the Journal of Negro History, as it was then known. Uh, and the work of Woodson, and he's based in Washington, D.C., the work of Woodson and other small but uh, dedicated and talented community of Black history scholars in the 1920s and 1930s, many of them under the tutelage of Woodson, uh, will begin compiling a body of work uh, along with a, a guy, I got to mention him, by the way, named Arturo Schomburg, was a Puerto Rican-born man of uh, African ancestry who comes to the United States. He sets up shop in New York City, and he becomes an ex or, uh, begins an extraordinary career, Schomburg does, in compiling documents and original primary sources, ultimately numbering in the many tens of thousands of individual historical archived records, uh, testimonials, narratives, you name it. Uh, so a kind of critical mass in the 1920s being formed here uh, by these talented scholars to excavate black history. And, you, and you, to appreciate this, look, at the time, none of the major uh, universities, so like uh, Carter Woodson gets his PhD from Harvard, mm -hmm. in all fairness, uh, only the second black scholar, as I say, after W.B. Du Bois, get his Ph.D. from Harvard. But he did, he got it in history, but not in black history. I mean, I forget. He studied something like modern Europe or medieval Europe yeah. or something because there was no degree in black history. Right. There, there you know, very, very few. I mean, uh, in, in any curriculum, unless you had, say, a traditionally black college, you know, say Howard in Washington, D.C. But even at Howard, most of the history that's being taught, you know, is being taught of the larger na nation state frame and imperial frame of, of history. Uh, and so even by the, you know, the 1930s, what Carter Woodson's trying to do to create, in effect, a field of black history is almost unprecedented, uh, as it were. So, so the question then becomes, well, look, if, uh, you know, and, and occasionally, as you mentioned, you would see maybe a white author. See, because at this time, the American Historical Review, which was the primary journal of the, uh, the American Historical Association, or the Mississippi Valley Historical Review, which is nowadays the Organization of American History and the Journal of American History. We can almost tell by the title, right? The Mississippi <laughs> Valley Historical Review. They weren't publishing works by black scholars. In fact, if memory serves, I'll be corrected on this if necessary, but if memory serves, I don't think a, a single Black scholar publishes an essay, a mainline essay in the American Historical Review until I want to say the 1960s, maybe. But whether it's the, you know, the periodicals, whether it's the conferences, whether it's the departments, the history departments themselves, you're just not seeing integration. The history profession and academia remain entirely racially segregated. So, yeah, so these black scholars are doing this amazing work. And occasionally being joined by, you know, sort of outliers among, like you say, you know, political radicals or, or others who, who, who will chime in and, and share some of the burden of finding this history. Uh, but why isn't it by itself? Why isn't it changing the narrative? Why is it not overturning that nostalgic, romantic view of the old South, because believe me, Woodson was determined, as was Du Bois and other scholars, to completely uh, counteract 
that narrative, you know, by showing the essential humanity and volition and personhood of black lives in the American past and, and to, to, in effect, overturn the lies. So why is it not dislodging that story, Josh? Well, I'm part of, I mean, it's because it, it comes from the fringes, right? Or what's defined as the fringes. There's, there's a set of institutions, a power structure. It, I mean, it's, it's absolutely, um, you know, the same, same kind of thing with, with larger structures of power beyond academia, right? That when there is a power structure, when there's a story that makes sense to those who are in that power structure, it, it is incredibly hard to, to dislodge it because um, any evidence to the contrary is, is ignored, is silenced. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it exists almost parallel to, but separate and, and separate from that, that dominant narrative. And so you can have these scholars telling their stories, doing the work, following the rules of, of the historical field, right? Doing the, the kinds of research that would be accepted mm-hmm. as quote unquote scientific or objective history. Um, but because the story they're telling is, is so radically opposed that dominant narrative, there's just no, there's no space for it. It's that, that episteme that we talked about last, last episode, yep. it kind of closes around itself and keeps out um, any of the competitors. Yeah, you were exactly right there. And I appreciate you framing it in those, you know, sort of almost um, kind of global terms, because we could find this in places other than the American context, yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, we could find this story being silenced, you know, in, in university systems across the continent, uh, in England, I, I would imagine, in fact, I would venture to say that in most of the Im- imperial metropoles mm-hmm. uh, of the age, you would have seen something very similar. I know, for example, that some of the, the first black scholars coming out of the West Indies, you know, someone like Eric Williams, yeah. right, who, who writes, you know, this this landmark work, um, Slavery and Capitalism. Mm-hmm. He's coming out of, oh, I think it was Trinidad yeah, to, and Tobago, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, he's Trinidad. And he, he goes to London and, you know, he gets, you know, first-rate education uh, in the metropole, mm-hmm. right? Uh, coming from the former colonies of the West Indies. Um, but, you know, he returns, right? I mean, he's because he's studying first, he's studying European history, basically, and he's studying Western or West Indian history through the lens of European imperialism, right. right? So he's ultimately going to upend that narrative by returning, you know, to, to Trinidad and writing this this revisionist work, um, you know, in which he wants to do pretty much the same thing Carter Woodson was doing, which was, first of all, elevating black lives, you know, into the frame of humanity, you know, and 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 undoing the worst abuses of that that racist narrative, you know, that it implotted all the histories up to that point of white rule. So yeah, you can you can find these things happening in different places where the imperial web is sort of, you know, put colonial peoples or enslaved peoples in this, uh, you know, in this kind of historical death, you might yeah. say, of, of the narrative, right? So, and, and, and then the other reason I would say it's because the work of Carter Woodson and the scholars, the black scholars at Howard, you know, Rayford Logan. Rayford Logan was a, a guy who served in World War One as a black uh, in a uh, segregated army regiment, uh, U.S. Army regiment, had fought in Europe, was decorated in, in France by the French. You know, Ray- Rayford Logan comes back to, uh, you know, from the, the relatively liberal uh, racial scene in a city like Paris during the war comes back to the United States as many returning black servicemen did to find that their wartime service far from, you know, giving them greater 
what welcome and relief as black citizens of the country are simply now being used as an excuse for for even more bitter and hostile, you know, racial violence and other things. So, you know, Rayford Logan's one of these guys who's going to turn his frustration and his, you know, resentment of that into uh, a remarkable career as a black historian. So, uh, yeah, but the work they're doing, you know, if we talk about a mainstream and a mainstream story like the Southern nostalgia, the Southern romance, it's not speaking to that mainstream white anxiety then, is it? It's not, in other words, it's at a time of nativism, right? At a time of Jim Crow, at a time when you fear, you know, some status anxiety among white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, Americans. Those stories of black humanity are not what the doctor ordered, are they? No, I mean, it's it's the the kind of inverse of why we still keep getting all these World War II and in presidential biographies in the bookstore, right? That that's that's yes. what the audience wants to to read, and the audience is made up of a, a very particular group of people who don't want complications, who don't want complexity, who want to tell the story that makes them feel good, um, that uh, you know has some adventure and has some some uh, triumphal aspects to it. And they're not they don't you know that that audience is not served by uh, by these stories that seek to tell a history that goes against goes against the grain. We'll just put it that way. It sure does. Uh, and I think, you know, as historians, we can look back and we were looking for the antecedents of things or the early causes, the, the seeds that are being planted. And so we can see in the work of black scholars, you know, the seeds that will be planted for what will ultimately be a much more uh, well, closer to mainstream flowering, at least, you know, of, of what we call these days black black history. But it's going to take decades and decades and decades. Um, we can go back and we can find the, you know, the antecedents, we can find the seeds that are being planted, but we have to ask ourselves these questions because we're interrogating history here. We're, we're interrogating the story. You know, why doesn't the diagnose, the diagnostic, you know, why doesn't it take effect sooner? Why does it take decades and decades and decades and decades? Well, I mean, part of the answer that we've already suggested in the first segment of the podcast, which is to say the stories that block those other stories often present themselves as exclusive, as eternal, immutable, uneditable stories. And in this case, and this is the last guy I'm going to mention in today's broadcast, and we'll we'll take it up in, in subsequent um, broadcasts, is that you had the, the imprimatur of academia, yeah. of the nation's finest colleges, being pressed now into, you know, the uh, the authenticity, if you will, of that Southern romance story. And the guy I want to mention finally uh, in, in that regard, you know, is a guy by the name of Ulrich Bennell Phillips. And Phillips was himself a white historian born in LaGrange, Georgia, who will come to be the sort of towering historical intellect in the interwar years, that is in the early 20th century, but then after World War I, when he publishes his book in 1918 called American Negro Slavery. Uh, by that time, he was already uh, you know, a much decorated scholar. And I wanna say, listen, because we can talk about Klansmen you know, and these more sort of outlandish sort of figures, you know, in the, in the racial sort of tapestry, the white, racial tapestry of America. But Phillips 
was regarded in his day, and I think, you know, in some ways still as a kind of scholar's scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, he's coming of age in the progressive era. He's being trained uh, at Columbia. He's a graduate of the University of Georgia, but then went to Columbia, which is arguably the finest graduate program at the time, but also, as it turns out, one of the most reactionary, because what he's learning to do is what was considered the scientific method of history that I alluded to earlier in the podcast. Uh, in other words, Phillips is going to be one of the first to go back to the archival sources. And a lot of them weren't even archived yet. I mean, he's having to pull, say, plantation records, you know, of every sort of nook and cranny of, of the South, which included not only archives and, and libraries, but also, you know, local history, play, you know, people's attics, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, he's sending out his researchers to find the records. And so he's considered a scholar's scholar. And what Phillips does differently is instead of engaging in the same old, what they called waving the bloody shirt, which was taking a partisan stance on the political history of the Civil War, you know, he bypasses all that. And he says, no, I want to understand the underlying economic and sociological um, structure of the, uh, of the American South and of slavery. So his focus is on the plantation, and when he's one of the first historians to get then into the records, the manuscript records of the old South plantations to try and understand what, you know, where, as I say, the sort of economic and sociological basis for that as a system. Now, okay, but the reason he becomes, in effect, the, the arch defender, if you will, of what then in the other track of American storytelling is the Old South narrative, you know, that's going to go through Hollywood and through novels and that sort of thing. With Phillips, you'll get the joining of these storytelling traditions because in American Negro slavery in 1918 uh, and in 1929, he publishes his second uh, landmark uh, work, Life and Labor in the Old South. He will mix the romantic ideal of an old South with the, so in other words, the stuff that was coming through in the popular storytelling, right? Of the Hollywood movies and that sort of, he's going to mix that romantic idea of an old South now with the social science credentials and scholarship that he's doing as a historian on the plantation as a model of social and racial harmony. Uh, you know, in other words, Phillips is writing his histories at a time of racial consensus for white Americans in support of immigration restrictions mm. against brown skinned people, the ongoing Jim Crow racial segregation of black lives. And so and he's not the first to do this, but he's the most recognized scholar, the most lauded scholar to embrace an idyllic moonlight and magnolia view of the old planet class and kind of lay it across the top of his more sociological and economic analysis of the plantation, uh, you know, the history of the plantation. And uh, not surprisingly, perhaps, arrives ultimately at the same conclusion, because even though he says from a purely analytical standpoint that that somehow that what he called Negro slavery was an inefficient model of yeah. labor. Nevertheless, he quickly doubles back and says that due to the bedrock fact of Negro inferiority, that it was 
ultimately the ideal model for social and racial harmony due to the fact of Southern white paternalism. That is the paternalism of the Southern uh, slave owner, white slave owner, that that as a mode of racial relations with white folks on top and black folks under their authority proved to be a far more effective model of social harmony and uh, than, than what had passed ever since the Civil War, particularly through Reconstruction and even into the age. Remember now of the war interwar years, there's going to be a lot of unrest in America, including racial unrest. You're going to have attacks, you know, on returning black servicemen uh, in some of the, the industrial cities of the Midwest. You're going to have what are usually called racial riots. You're going to get the Tulsa massacre, I mean, these things were often depicted as riots, but really what they were were attacks by often, you know, white, armed white self-styled militia groups that were going into often black urban neighborhoods like in Tulsa and just raining down violence and havoc. And so interestingly enough, Phillips could say what? He could say, yes, well, as a social, as a model, socioeconomic model of harmony, the old South didn't have these mm -hmm. problems. Well, the, you yeah. know, and therefore give, yeah, give his scholarly sort of, uh, you know, approval to that um, system of, of, of racial supremacy and slavery. Yeah, what I was going to say is going back to that, that comment I made earlier about the, you know, honest and intelligent agents of imperialism. These kind of people are, are so significant for this whole process, for this whole structure, because, you know, on the one hand, you can you can kind of pick out these the, the bad guys of history, right? The, the foaming at the mouth guys in, in white robes, you know, screaming about, uh, you know, uh, protecting the race and not being replaced by, by, you know, whatever these racial theories are. Um, and the other hand, you have these buttoned up men, mostly coming from some of the, the elite institutions of the United States or, or Europe, um, practicing history in a way that, you know, kind of conforms with what we think of as objective and scientific. And yet really doing the job of those foaming mouth racist uh, on, yep. on the streets. And it's kind of, you know, in many ways, similar to what we were saying about, about Churchill or just kind of the great man history, right? Is that that version of history wants to pluck out these extraordinary individuals and place them on pedestals and place them at the center of, of our narratives. Um, the flip side of that though, is what history is also wanting to do. And I think what UBL Phillips is maybe doing as well is suggesting that there are bad people, um, but those bad people just the same can be plucked out of history and then and then presented as kind of the exception, right? That yes, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Dyer in India, you know, slaughtered hundreds of Indians, but but that's that's the exception. That's not. It doesn't represent Indian. Uh, sorry, British imperialism or, or something like that. Um, but what they're doing, what these guys are doing, is uh, is covering up the systemic aspects of this and suggesting that, you know, that this is this is not just you know pure nostalgia. It's not pure uh, you know irrationality. It's not pure racism. But this is what comes from an honest and reasoned study of, of the sources. And that's, that's dangerous, right? And that's, that's, um, it's powerful also. And it gives cover to, to the systemic aspects uh, of, of these, these systems beyond those, those extraordinary examples of, of individuals. Yeah, I like that a lot uh, because it really does get us back to this idea that it's inherent in these systems that are that are you know essentially constructed around in this case let's say some sort of racial caste or you know imposition of authority and force by you know one 
ethnic or racial group over another, uh, that in some ways makes the individuals in the story, it, on the one hand, it makes them useful as tropes, yeah. you know, if you want to put them on a statue and try to sanitize it, you know, by, by picking a moment in time like Churchill's wartime speeches or something, you know, but, but then it also makes it a lot easier to kind of vilify and demonize those who become casual targets, you know, or easy to convenient targets, I should say, you know, for, for arguing why, you know, certain kinds of resistance was inappropriate. In other words, you, you, you could look at, you know, Birth of a Nation in the film and see, you know, freedmen, former slaves, you know, pro, you know, trying to, uh, what, trying to, um, you know, ensure their fundamental rights now as human beings and turn it into a character and say, oh, no, they were all rioters and rapists and they were they were out of their place, you know. So it's we'll call it the double edge of statues, you know. If you're trying to create the the sanitized exemplar, you can do that easy enough. But if you're trying to scare people or demonize people, you can do that pretty easily yeah. too. And uh, so, okay. So the last thing I'll say about that then is why it's going to get back to us in in, in episodes to come as so critical that we interrogate this history. Is that Phillips himself, you know, argued that the near absence of slave rebellions in the old South was a self, a measure of how successful that relationship was between slave owner and slave in making the slaves happy and contented. As he put it, quote, slave revolts and plots very seldom occurred in the United States, close quote. And that was due in his telling to the paternal hand of the slave master, of course, as well as the general docility and submissive character of the enslaved. So likewise, the commercial success of his books, and this was at a time when even academic uh, histories were often featured, say, in popular, say, Book of the Month Club selections. Uh, the commercial success of his books reflected on the popularity of his thesis, which meant that by 1930s, U.B. Phillips, having written five books and 55 articles, dominated the writing of Southern history. And in that sense, really the, the, the writing of U.S. history, uh, within a decade or so of its publication, Life and Labor in the Old South had gone through seven printings, making it the most widely read academic work on Southern slavery and the history profession's equivalent of Gone with the Wind. Now, okay, so we've we've established how a story becomes what? Um, settled? Settled history, we might yeah. say. Uh, in this case, in a very specific historical context of the United States, the Old South history. What we'll do in uh, episodes to come is try to show how that story then, which puts itself forward as honorable, timeless, you know, immutable in all the same ways, you know, that we've been discussing, how it will come to be directly challenged and how through a somewhat slow, often slow process, the story will begin to change.
I want to take us out here with just a quick discussion of this piece I read recently. Um, well, I'm not going to get fully into it, but just some of the key points of, of a piece by a woman named Holly Brewer who wrote uh, a, a, an article called Race and Enlightenment. Um, and what she gets into is a, is a lot of really interesting things. Maybe we can post this on our social media and on our website. But um, what she, she begins by talking about this, this effort in the kind of mid-century, you know, interwar and then post-World War II period in particular, of scholars uh, across Europe, and then I think even more particularly in the United States, uh, once again, Columbia University, very heavily involved here, um, who had this idea of what civilization was. And what they then wanted to do was to seek out the kind of works, the kind of stories that would aid their students in understanding and furthering modernity, right? So they had these ideas of this is what defines our civilization, democracy and human rights, enlightenment, scientific method, capitalism, and so what they then try to do is, is seek out the works that would contribute to these ideas of furthering civilization in the present by understanding its past. And that's a direct quote from, from Holly Brewer. So what they ended up doing, though, in that, in that process, in that kind of what she calls a scholarly uplift for society, was they omitted from their assembled record uh, works that did not fit present desires. So I'm quoting here, she says, ancient, medieval, and modern works that were not a useful past for liberal modernity were ignored, not revived, not translated, not reprinted, not quoted, not read, not taught. It was thus that they created a modern canon that revolved around and vindicated the issues that they themselves cared about. So you were just talking about, and that's unquote, by the way, um, you were just talking about you know, the, the, the strength of narratives, and, and that's vitally important. What she's pointing out as well, though, is that even the way we can construct the narratives is so based around the sources that we have access to. And it's really important to understand as we kind of interrogate history, the way that the very source that make up our canon, the sources that are considered important, the sources that are considered um, worthy of study and worthy of attention were themselves selected out. And in that selection, other things were erased. And as she points out, a lot of the stuff that was erased were those things that went against the story they wanted to tell most, most strongly, that got at not just the, the scientific method of the Enlightenment, for instance, but of the extremes of, of kind of racism um, and, uh, and uh, myth and that sort of thing that was also emerging in conversation with the discussions of the enlightenment. Yeah, you know, I'll yeah. even throw in Josh with with we know now about the research that Phillips did is that he was getting in a plantation uh, records all right, but as it turns out his sample of plantations was only uh you might say among the kind of elite or large scale yeah. plantations in the south that is the the most affluent, most heavily invested because in some ways his thesis really only work if he featured, you know, those, that strata of plantation society, right. you know, which as it turns out represented something like less than 1% of the total slaveholding population of the South. That is of say plantations that held more than, more than a hundred enslaved laborers. Uh, but, but those, that, that sample, if you will, that small sample then uh, was the sample that would best, support his argument for the sort of, uh, you know, model of, of social and economic harmony of the uh, of the old South plantation. Right. And so that selectiveness of sources is so, is so vital because even if you wanted to choose, uh, I'm sorry, if you wanted to counter the, the traditional narrative, often what that meant is using the same sources that the people who were telling the narrative you didn't like 
we're, we're using and then trying to reinterpret them, try to read them against the grain. Uh, she actually has a critique of Ibram Kendi, actually, uh, for doing this very thing, that he's, he's using a very small strat of sources to try to make his case. And in doing so, he's ignoring other sources um, that, that go against the argument that he's trying to make. We don't need to get in that too much, but I want, I want, do want to end with this because it's, it's, I think, a really important thing is, you know, when we think about the source, when we think about the canon, um, it really can limit our ability to, to see the past, to understand the past. So I'm going to quote here from her again. She says, it is a bit like the problem that police detectives describe of the man who loses his wallet at night. Some part of the street is lit up by a streetlight and it is easiest, even instinctual to look there but that might not be the best place to look. Um, and, you know, as historians, as teachers, as people who, who want to present history to a, a public, you know, I think what this suggests to us is that we need to be more attuned to those dark places. You know, we all have these phones with flashlights on them. Turn those flashlights on and look in the nooks and crannies. Don't just take the cannon at face value and try to understand that, you know, things like, you know, the works of Western civilization themselves were constructed not by people in the past, but by pe people in the recent, uh, in, in the more recent past, who did so, who made those selections for very clear, uh, very easily to understand ideological reasons. So let's start hunting around the dark a little bit. Yeah, let's interrogate the dark. How's that? <laughs> this has been History Against the Grain, episode 51, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. Nobody.